Girl Tries Life podcast, where we show you that women are capable of absolutely incredible things with the right tools, strategies, and mindset in place. I'm your host, Victoria Smith, a stress reduction coach who's all about helping you significantly reduce your stress so that you can actually enjoy and perform better in your daily life. Now, today on the podcast, I'm really pleased to be joined by Shifra Gadamsetti, who's going to be talking to us about how you can really start to affect change through policy and how average individuals like you and I can be a little bit more active with honestly not that much effort and how it can really be a game changer. Now, before we get into that, the Girl Tries Life podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is powered by ATB. This particular episode is brought to you by Straight from the CPA's Mouth, a new podcast series created by the CPA Education Foundation and funded by HESHI, a CPA Knowledge Center. Alberta's Chartered Professional Accountants, or CPAs, are experts on a wide range of topics and issues of interest to Albertans. Straight from CPA's Mouth has discussions on topics important to you, from leadership skills and achieving career potential to financial literacy and how to make your tax refund bigger. I know we'd all appreciate that. Whether you're a university student, a new Albertan, or a parent, you'll find something of value on this unique podcast. So you'll find straight from the CPA's mouth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or basically wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find it on their website at cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. That's cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. This episode is also brought to you by Inventures Unbound, the ultimate platform for innovators, investors, and industry to share, inspire, and interconnect virtually. Even in these times of distancing, connection and innovation are more important than ever. Inventures Unbound is brought to you by Alberta Innovates to ensure that inventors have opportunities to connect with ideas, investors, and industries from within our borders and reaching far beyond. Join the launch of a virtual community with live stream events June 3rd and 4th. The opening keynote is renowned neuroscientist Tali Sherritt, who will speak on how innovators and investors can harness optimism and vastly improve their decision-making skills. Other topics due for a deep dive will include smarter cities, vibrant communities, healthy, healthier living, broader thinking, agriculture in the technology age, and innovation of work. And you don't want to miss out on the all-out live stream pitch battle event. So if you have a pass to Inventures 2020, then you've already got access to all of Unbound's goodies. And if you would like access to just Unbound, there's a pass for that at InventuresCanada.com, I-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S Canada. Com. So as I said, today on the podcast, I'm joined by Shifra Gadamsetti. She's also known, uh, goes by Shif for short. I first discovered Shifra on Instagram as she was working away on a federal political campaign. And I was blown away by her ability to champion a cause without getting ranty, for lack of a better word, <laughs> uh, and her sharing of how we can be better activists for important causes and so much more. She's a recipient of the Mount Royal University Outstanding Future Alumni Award, and Shifra spoke about having lived a lot of life in a short period of time, and it's true. Diagnosed with type 1 diabetes at a young age, Shifra then went into the MRU nursing program at just 16. After graduating, she realized that she hadn't quite had her fill for education and, and it wasn't something was missing. And so she went on to study a bunch of different courses and ended up pursuing a sociology degree, which I believe she's graduating from this month. A huge discovery in this was understanding policy work and, and how critical it was to having an impact on any change that we want to see. So that second degree at MRU while she was there saw her getting involved in multiple volunteer organizations and the passion for standing up what she believed in really grew. We also talk about her complicated health history and the decision and 10-year journey to having her fallopian tubes removed. It's really a fascinating story. It's a phenomenal conversation, and I just want to commend Shifra for her vulnerability in sharing those stories. I think it does such a, a service to the public on what it means to advocate for your health and to be heard and, and all those good things. So I want to thank her, and we'll head straight into the interview. So it's funny because I also edit this podcast called the Shift Change Podcast and in its for nurse yeah. leaders and they talk about like nursing, nurses are the most trusted profession and yet they have one of the smallest voices at the table because it's always doctors that are called on or it's politicians who are making decisions without necessarily consulting nurses or the healthcare yeah. professionals. So when you look at nursing and public policy, like what kind of change do you want to see or impact? You know, I think there's just this weird dichotomy 
you know, where people think like healthcare and the public life that we live, you know, like with the royal we, um, is is super separated, and we don't really have to engage with one uh, unless you know there's an issue or we need treatment. And I think there are really great ways to sort of educate the public on why, like public life, society, sort of you know the way that we support each other is totally integral. To the way that their individual health is managed and you know they find success with their recovery or their treatment um and i think there are a lot of people who do know that i think there are a lot of people who don't know that also but it's i'm just i think that we just need to change our perspective as like a collective decision-making body right and when like part of the reason why i chose the or is matt royal's program is so amazing in that it actually it's not optional you really do experience multiple different specialties so you make an informed decision which is not something that every nursing student really has the opportunity to do and you know I did my time in mental health like adult health working with children prenatal you know pregnant labor and delivery like all these different kinds of patients and the OR the reason I chose that after experiencing it for a little bit I mean, being lucky enough to have my practicum there was because it felt equitable to be in the room. Like there is, the the surgeon really can't get anything done without everybody working in tandem. And same with the anesthesiologist, same with, you know, everyone in the room plays a role. And if one person were to, you know, be unable to fulfill whatever they were responsible for, it actually does bring everything to a grinding halt. And whether it's indirect or direct, I think that kind of environment really does model how it should be. And I think that's, it's like, again, I feel really lucky to have had that experience because I know that's not what it's like for all the nurses out there. But yeah, you know, they're the front lines. And I feel like just trying to systemically shift our perspective to be more proactive and healthier and understand how things are all interconnected would be, it's a very grand goal if that answers your question. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's like, part of me is like, I don't know how much I want to delve into like the specifics of politics right now. And yet it's also such a, you know, it is public yeah. policy, right? And it's like, it, it, it's a fine line. But I look at what's happening right now. And I think, you know, so for the listeners, as we record this, it is March 13th, uh, 2020. And coronavirus in Calgary is sort of on the rise and we're facing, you know, um, negotiations with doctors and everything. Like there's just so much that's kind of coming to a head at once. And I, I don't know. My take is that this is a time to really be supportive of our healthcare professionals on all fronts because they are supporting us through a crisis. Maybe I'm in the minority. I don't know. But that's how I feel. <laughs> Well, I don't think that you are, right? And I think that, again, like that awareness and that interconnectedness between sort of politics and the quality of care that you receive, people might not just have that at the front of their mind when they're watching the news and they're looking at, you know, it's like, oh, Alberta doctors are just going after the government and vice versa and whatever. And it's, it's really like it's not about that. It's, it's about the quality of care that you can receive on any given day. And now that we have this added um, window dressing of, of uh, coronavirus, we like I just I really do get nervous. And it's, um, you know, I think maybe in comparison to past issues or disagreements or arguments or I don't know, protest strikes between healthcare professionals and government this time around, I will say that I I'm a little bit more heartened because I feel like, you know, the nurses union, the teachers union, um, the medical association, they are not just talking about sort of their policy objectives and, you know, what their kind of wishes are for an ideal situation to get through this. Um, but they're contextualizing it, right? Like you're seeing a lot of the narrative out there where people are like, this is what it means for me to do quote unquote five minute medicine. This is what it means for like, a patient that I saw today, you know, this is what it's like for me to be a caregiver to my family while I'm also working in the healthcare profession. And I think that is just a lot more effective in some cases, talking, trying to get 
people to understand like why policy is like why the current discussions in Bill 21 are issues. Because like, frankly, I always just like think about the person I was five years ago. I knew nothing about politics. Five years ago, if you had told me, you know, that this is what my job would be, this is what I would care about, I would just completely laugh. Like, I don't think that I knew who my MP or my MLA or my city councilor was. I could not tell you what a policy was. I had no idea what governance was. I was just irritated. Like, I was like, I just need to do something about this and I don't know what or why I should pursue something. And so just trying to, I guess, replicate that for other people. Well, what I think is interesting about that is that like, feel like I'm outing my husband here but he absolutely hates um following politics like he just hates it it gives him anxiety and all that stress and I, and I understand it whereas I'm on the opposite end of it where I'm like consuming a lot of it all the time and so it's an interesting yeah. dynamic in our household but you know he'll often get frustrated with things and I say well that's the challenge is if you don't if you aren't informed and if you don't get involved those frustrations will not go away and that's why I think being aware of politics and emailing your MLAs or all of that kind of stuff is very critical because they make the decisions, right? Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. And to be fair to your husband, like it's not pleasant. Oh no. You know, there's, yeah. I don't love it. My MLA has received 24 emails and one phone call from me to date. Um, I think he ignores them now. I think he's pretty sick of me, but it feels the most constructive way that I can express my concerns, right? Like, I feel like just me angrily tweeting is not as effective as me making sure it's documented and, and I don't know, whether anything changes or not, it makes me feel better. Right. I mean, at least, you know, I think you've done your part and it's interesting that you like bring up the angry tweeting, um, you know, I, I can totally empathize with your husband. It's kind of a catch-22 when you're trying to get pe- people interested in politics and to try and make it digestible, right? Because when things are going well, no one feels compelled to be like, let me read, you know, the 40-page bill that got royal assent and, you know, made me, made, like, helped me experience this positive thing today. You know, like, no one is excited about necessarily going back and reading like very boring legislative language or necessarily understanding like how good things come to be the good things that they are. But on the flip side, you know, the time when people pay the most attention is when things are absolutely falling apart. And so it's very difficult to, I think, navigate trying to figure that out. And, you know, if Someone asked me what my dream job was, and I said, like, making politics accessible to people. I would, I would, I would spend the rest of my days doing that and be very, very happy. So what, on, but, that, um, on that, then, like, yeah. what do you think are a couple things that we can do to make it more accessible? I, like, I think, you know, the things that you've done, such as, like, reaching out to your MLA or your, your elected official, like, there are people in all orders of government, like sometimes it's just as simple as like, hey, I don't understand why this is happening. And it doesn't necessarily even have to be from like a perspective of like, I'm upset about these decisions. I think just reaching out and getting to know your, like getting to know who they are is a big first step. Um, Lots of people, you know, don't make the connection between necessarily who their elected official is and like the role that they represent and so you have it was really interesting experience that I had um so Kent Hare had been the MP for Calgary Center before this last federal election and like he's known for being out and about in the community a ton and I think he had a fair bit of you know airtime and I just remember talking to someone who was like yeah like that's that politician and I'm like yeah like where do you where do you live and they're like, oh, in, in downtown, like in the Beltline. And I was like, yeah, like he's your MP. And it was just kind of this weird, like reconciliation in their mind. They're like, wait, so this guy that I'm like totally discussing is actually like the person that represents my writing. I'm like, yes, you know. And so trying to just get people to, at a very baseline level, understand who represents them. So when you see them saying things, talking, doing whatever out in public, you 
kind of start to develop like a little bit of a personal accountability with your representative, right? Because their job primarily above all else, it doesn't matter if you're in cabinet or you're a backbencher, is to represent their constituents. And so if you are able to make that connection, you're able to be a little bit more accountable for how much you pay attention, whether you pay attention, how you're going to hold them accountable for representing you. It's a good first step. I think conversation is also really great. Um, I have learned over time to try to approach difficult conversations about politics by assessing them first. So like assessing their level of understanding. A lot of times I think people are just really misinformed or have been going off of incorrect information and you know, if you sit down and sort of break it down for them, there's a there's a good chance that maybe they won't. It's it's not going to be an oppositional conversation, uh, but it does take a lot of patience. And I'm going to be very honest; I don't do it every single time. None um, of us do. <laughs> not even our elected officials do that perfectly every right. single time. So, yeah. Well, I think that's really interesting. And what was what was it like working on a campaign? Yeah. So that was. The most interesting experience, I'll say, that I have to date, um, and I should like I should make this very clear. It was the very first time, and honestly, in my mind, maybe the very last time that I will uh, be participating in a partisan campaign. You know, it was really eye-opening for me. I've done a ton of government relations-related work, campaign work you know, public awareness, campaign-based stuff, and lots of different lobbying and advocacy, but never before from a partisan perspective. And so I was really, really grateful to have the, the experience, right, to see the, to see the other side, to see it from the back end. Um, and the reason I chose to do it was because of the person, not the party, uh, which is something that I kind of try to live by as a personal ethos. I, um, yeah, no, it was, it was, it was great. It was very busy. Uh, it was the busiest seven weeks of my life. <laughs> I drank so much coffee. I let every other responsibility just fall to the wayside because I was also a full-time student at the time. Um, and yeah, you just, you learn a lot about what makes people tick when it comes to their passion for politics, right? Like a, um, I think when I've been just generally talking to people, they're a little bit hesitant to be really forthcoming about why they're so attached to their party or their politics. And like even distinguishing between those two things, like their politics being about their politics and their politics being about their party tells you a lot. And so being a people just let their guard down a little bit and we're openly sharing their motivations for being you know, being involved with the party. And it's, it's very, very surprising to me. Like some people will literally say like my parents, my grandparents voted for this party. My parents voted for his dad. So I'm going to vote for him. And other people will say, well, it's like the least defensive thing to me. <laughs> other people will literally look at you and say, like, I'm just looking for a job in the private sector and I'm involved with the party because I know that that will sort of help me get to a public sector position, hopefully, fingers crossed, and then I can make my move. Like, it's very calculated. It's mm -hmm. so interesting to see people's different motivations. And then, like, you know, you have people who are retired and spend, like, 40 hours a week, like, drafting policy for in a volunteer position because they're just so passionate about, you know, national pharmacare. Um, there are people who, you know, want to be involved because they're like, this is the best choice chance for me to kind of get my message out there in regards to like a social issue that I really care about um yeah so it's it was just really illuminating really eye-opening incredibly busy uh it is Alberta and so politics in Alberta I think always just comes with a little more spice it's <laughs> uh, a nice way to put it <laughs> yeah so you know but I'm really I'm really proud of our efforts um we weren't successful I, I was I was with a liberal campaign and I felt I thought that you know if we were going to lose I might be a little sad at the end I might be you know just 
kind of frustrated about the reasons why, et cetera. And I am just really happy to say that I walked away from that feeling like no regret, no remorse. Like we just kind of left it all out on the table did some like really cool, fun, interesting things, made some new friends, um, kind of amped my comms experience a bit because I do not have any formal education in that area. So it's just been really like teaching myself interesting skills. And so that was a great opportunity for that. But yeah, definitely very polarizing, uh, but worth it. So you actually, we've probably touched on a couple of them, but I remember after or maybe it was during that election campaign, you you did this really great piece on your Instagram stories about ways that people can civically engage beyond a hashtag or a tweet. And like, I remember you shared an actual resource about that. But um, can you share a couple of details on how we can average people can feel like they make a difference? Um, well, can actually make a difference? You know, I think it's hard to say. I'm, I think it's really hard to ask people to approach their politics with an open mind in the environment that we're in right now. And, you know, I will say that there is a caveat to that because there are some things that you just like don't need to talk about with an open mind, like homophobia or like basic human rights, like shelter and, you know, stuff like that. But there, I think the, like the one thing that I could challenge somebody and it's honestly taught me a lot and has brought me to where I am, where I feel really good about my politics. I feel really good about sort of my personal practice when it comes to like living life by my politics, like it's not this abstract thing, is being open-minded. And if you have the, you know, capacity, the spoons to essentially have kind of a challenging conversation or difficult conversation with somebody else to try and get them to see your perspective, I think that is probably the most effective thing that we can do as a society and as individuals um, regarding kind of getting more involved. And it also just creates this like really good feedback loop, right? Like when you're having a conversation with somebody and you don't know all the facts, like who doesn't, who, who likes feeling like they don't know what they're talking about? I think it just kind of invites you to dig a little deeper to think about, okay, why do I feel the way that I feel? How am I going to justify this to another person? Um, and I find that to be just like a really good iterative practice that I do. Um, and also to, you know, to say like, I don't know, um, giving credit where credit is due, I think is really important. Um, people on the side of the spectrum that you may or may not agree with, like have had good ideas. Like, you know, because we've had multiple parties in power and our entire nation hasn't fallen apart (laughs) means that something was going right. It might not be very many things according to your political alignment, but you know, things are going right. And so there's always something to learn. I'll just use the example of like the carbon tax, right? Like when I talk to people who are not in favor of the carbon tax, I'm like, you do know that this was a conservative idea. Like you understand that this idea was not the liberal playbook that it comes out of, you know, the, the, the right side of political history. And people are often really surprised to hear that. And I'm like, yeah, so you know, there's just been a shift since it was first proposed. And also just to, you know, I think that brings me to my third point. Politics is like, it's kind of a sham. Like, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know how to say that. Like, of course, policy is important. Governance is important, but that's not politics. So, you know, you're going to be frustrated quite a bit. You're, You're going to be annoyed. You're going to be questioning why people didn't make the right decisions at the time. And like most often the answer to that is, well, we just needed to show up the other guy in some way, shape or form. And so it's kind of a sham. It's kind of just theater. And I like, I, I try to remind people of that, right? Like decisions are not made because, or not always made because they're the right decisions. Sometimes it's very petty. Sometimes it's really unfortunate and it sucks that, you know, we've kind of deferred our, this great responsibility of governance to our elected officials. And sometimes they don't use them in the ways that they should. Uh, but yeah, I would, I would, I would leave it at that as a good start, you know, keep, keep an open mind when you're talking to people, challenge yourself to 
you know, continually be learning and engaging with discussion. And at the end of the day, like really separate politics from governance. Um, politics is, is theatrical and governance is like the thousand people that work in the background, kind of running the math and drafting the bill and doing all that. So I like that, that the, the distinction between politics and governance, because it gives me a lot more faith that there's so many more people doing the governing right than the than the political side of things and it's it's funny because like in alberta post the provincial election i was a little disheartened and Mm -hmm. i remember that next couple of days like running into you know having to take my car to the garage having to like go to the grocery store and do all these things and it was just running in the back of my head head of like statistically most of these people probably voted differently than I did or my neighbors yep. and everything. And I, and I kept thinking, but I still like these people. And like, so hold on to that. And like, there is a good reason that they voted the way that they voted, hopefully. Um, and so it is that open-mindedness of like, don't paint it the way that necessarily Twitter paints it always or whatnot of like, these are still human beings who made a decision that made the most sense for them and their family. It doesn't necessarily align with me and my values, but that doesn't make, it it doesn't mean, you know, we need to be vilifying individuals or anything. It means we need to be understanding. Absolutely. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you a thousand percent. There are always exceptions to the case, but I think... (laughs) All of us are really good at, I think, just like intrinsically knowing when someone is, you know, open to a conversation with you that's meaningful. And if they've already made up their mind and they're going to, you know, they're just going to argue with you for the sake of arguing. And while I love arguing um, or debating, I have found myself more and more choosing to walk away from those situations because I'm like, I know that this is going to take up my energy and is it really the place where I want to leave it right now um you know like and that's like the real life version of like the comment section (laughs) like you just is it necessary like yeah people are saying some really egregious I was gonna swear but I won't (laughs) like um people are just saying some really egregious things on the internet and you get all fired up and you get really upset and you want to be reactionary and like, does that serve you in that moment? Like, is your one comment going to change this person's perspective? I, there are some people who believe that it might, but I'm I'm just like, I think, I think not today. I think I will walk away. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, I want to interrupt the podcast really quickly. Many of you will have heard before, if you're on my mailing list or whatnot, me talking about my program, Don't Just Survive, Thrive, Building Resilience During COVID-19. It's a self-led program that's all about helping you bounce back from the roller coaster of stress that we're experiencing with COVID right now. And it's really a foundational building block course. But here's the thing. My one way that I feel that I can really give back right now is to make it free to all essential workers. So whether that's you whether you know someone that's an essential worker, be it healthcare, they're working in grocery stores, they're working in transportation, they're, they're, they're keeping things ticking along while the rest of us are staying home safe. I would so, so love it if you would share this with them. The way to do that is to send them or yourself, if you're the essential worker, to stresslessladies.com forward slash frontline. And once people sign up there in uh, just a couple business days, they will get access to the six-week program for free. It is completely self-led, so you can do it in your car. You can, if you've got 20 minutes to sit down and, and watch one of the videos, uh, that's all you really need. And then to, to apply the homework into your daily life. Honestly, the people who have been through the group coaching version of it have said that it's just been phenomenal for them and teaching them all the skills that they need to bounce back faster from these harder times. So again, it's my one way that I feel that I can give back right now. So if you are an essential worker or if you know an essential worker, I would so appreciate it if you would send them to stresslessladies.com forward slash frontline. And uh, maybe the best way to do that is to pause this podcast right now and send them a text. Again, stresslessladies.com forward slash frontline. Back to the interview. So on that, I mean, it kind of touches on the next question I was going to ask about 
politics can be so overwhelming and stressful for a lot of people, especially around election cycles. I don't know how people in the U.S. do it when it feels like they're just constantly campaigning. But like, how do you stay actively engaged without letting it negatively affect your daily life? Like you you just spoke about like walking away when it's clear that like no constructive uh, conversation is going to be had. But what else do you do to manage that stress? It's, I think it's a little maybe unconventional for me because part of staying engaged is like part of my job is just very much staying engaged, right? Like I, um, have on me at any given time, a minimum of like three devices (laughs) and a lot of the time they're all on and they're all sort of, you know, giving me a bunch of notifications. And, um, I think like, uh, I'm trying to think of like a more universal way to put this, I guess it's, it's hard not to get sucked into this vortex, especially when you're feeling passionate about something. Right. And like a lot of the times the vortex is opinion, not fact. So you are just like, you click on, you know, a Facebook post or a tweet and it's something that you really, really disagree with. And then you go into the comments and then, there's a bunch of people saying things and like just the way that you find information through that process is a lot of time is hyperpolarized. It's not necessarily factual. I mean, some of it might be, and that's why you were drawn to it in the first place. But I think, you know, just taking a pause and saying, okay, is this something that a, I actually care about right now? Um, B that I care to learn more about and see like, why the part of I think a very intentional strategy of our current government is to like change the channel as soon as possible right so it's like we're doing something it sucks we're doing another thing and it's the people just I think it was Zane Belgi who was talking about it on an interview and he was like it's like political whiplash like you're constantly just like swiveling your head and you're turning around and it's like it's just an effective divide and conquer strategy because you're feeling like you have to be so engaged with everything. And like, here's a little secret, everyone. You don't. <laughs> so pick the thing that is important to you. And I think once, you know, you're like, okay, this is the thing that I'm focusing on, the issue that matters to me most, I'm really interested in. I think intentionally stepping away from it and stepping away from the commentary itself Um and trying to find ways to learn more about it that are outside of that political context. So I am like, I'm, and maybe this isn't, you know, the easiest thing for people or or the best way that they learn. uh, But I, I'm a voracious reader. I love like just like consuming information. I don't know why I, um, and, and so I just find in general that to be very difficult for me, but sometimes when I'm like, okay, we're talking about healthcare, why, rather than scroll through, you know, 400 tweets mm-hmm. about why people are upset, I'm actually going to close Twitter and I'm going to go open my browser and I'm going to look up a specific topic. Like I'm going to become more informed as to why um, timed billing codes, you know, at this level aren't the most effective way to do healthcare. Why privatization ends up being detrimental to a country. Like what exactly makes the U.S.'s healthcare system as, you know, inaccessible as it does. And I, like, I find it does two things. It actually calms me down because I feel like I'm learning more. Um, And I'm not subjecting myself to the commentary. Like commentary at the end of the day is not actual factual information, right? And so I think stepping away is, 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 easier said than done but if you can make it work for you then you should definitely try and the other like you know ironically we are recording a podcast I find a like podcast to be one of the most effective ways to get information right from the source you know there's tons of interviews with different political leaders with different radio hosts with current news of the day like I have my Spotify set up so that every morning, whenever I log in, um, if I'm not able to tune in live, like I will listen to three separate news radio stations and they're parsed out in like 20 minute blocks. So it's digestible, just like finding other ways to get your information aside from the commentary is, is 
I think a, a, a thing we should all be working really hard to do because yeah, I don't, I don't know how else to answer that question. I, I find myself now that I'm in this position, actually a lot less, um, incent, like enticed by mo- like by social media. Um, I used to love it. It used to be like a big waste of my time. It would be really hard for me to walk away because I also have ADHD and, you know, the dopamine loves immediate alerts. But um, ever since kind of working more intentionally in a communications role, I found that I'm more than happy to like put the phone down and walk away when I'm done work for the day. Yeah. Oh, good for you. I think that's fantastic. And for anyone listening that's like, I don't think I could like step away from my social media, like it happens in baby steps, right? Like it's turning off your notifications. It's like taking a couple hours in the evening without it. Like you build it up and then you start to realize, oh, I don't actually need it to like run my life in many in many ways, right? Or maybe it's not providing the same kind of value I thought it was providing. Like I took a two month social media detox one summer and it was like the best thing I've ever done. Right. And like that, oh, that just reminded me also, like when you said it is baby steps, you know, what I kind of suggested was maybe a bit much of a leap, right? Just trying to walk away and ignore stuff. But the notifications thing is a big step or even like a lot of times I find like people on the internet are like, I'm just so mad that I have to see this stuff. And I'm like, did you know that you don't have to see this stuff? (laughs) You can literally go and unfriend somebody. You can mute them. You can hide them. You can block words temporarily, permanently. Like there are ways to still use social media without, you know, being subject to the volatility of the political issue of the day. Um, like Like you can do that. And it's, so surprising to me that so many people will not make that first step but say like I just find it to be so overwhelming and so stressful I'm like okay well yeah little steps you know hide the stuff don't turn off your notifications put your phone in another room and then like just walk away like just doing little things for like 10 minutes at a time I think go a really long way but people just don't feel like they're they don't assume they assume that it's not super impactful and so yeah, just trying to shift people's perspective on that. Well, for anyone that assumes it's not impactful, I'm listening to this great book right now called Deviced. And it's called Balance, Deviced, Balancing Life and Technology in a Digital World by Doreen Dodgkin, Dodgkin McGee. I highly recommend it uh, in terms of understanding the impact of like how much we are on our devices, especially social media. But um, yeah, so I want to talk next about you had some health challenges in the past year and I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about that and if it sort of shifted any of your shifted or um, amplified any of your views on healthcare policy yeah I don't know if it has necessarily shifted my views it has definitely reaffirmed them um, and, and I feel very much confident that what I believe in is you know evidence-based it is well-researched yeah the perspective that I support which is universal public health care for everybody is um, is necessary honestly to the survival of our society but just kind of an overview my family is they're relatively healthy with a few I think you know quite general sort of issues that don't pop up very often and I always joke with them I'm like I don't know what you were doing when you were making me but the Powerpuff Girls experiment went horribly wrong <laughs> So I am a type 1 diabetic. I was diagnosed when I was 7, so I'm insulin dependent. I became insulin dependent as a result of a pretty tragic autoimmune response from, like, treatments that happened prior to my diagnosis that involved my kidneys. Um, And so I've just been in and out of the hospital, I think, for as long as I can remember. Um, I also was diagnosed with ADHD fairly recently, uh, so about three years ago, and there have been some interesting challenges. I think because a lot of these issues that I'm talking about are chronic, right? So I've had them for so long. And in some ways, like people just, because of how long that I've had them and I've coped fairly decently, people just assume that, you know, it can't, it, it's not, it's not as bad as it needs to be. Um, and then last fall, I 
had my fallopian tubes removed, which was a 10-year process, a 10-year journey in the making. Um, so, you know, being a type 1 diabetic, I think you have some very interesting conversations, especially if you're diagnosed really young. Most people don't get diagnosed with that um, past maybe their mid-adult lives. And, you know, I think I'm, I was really grateful that it happened when I was a child versus a teenager or an adult, because there have been friends that I know who have been diagnosed later in life. And it is just a complete slap in the face. It kind of just shifts, like it messes with everything, right? Like it's, it's very hard, I think, to develop a totally different pattern of living once you have been established life as an adult. So being diagnosed younger was something I'm really grateful for. And I've been having very interesting sort of like adult-esque conversations since I've been very young. And one of them was around reproductive health and, you know, just been cautioned since I was probably like 14, more so as I was getting older, um, about how, you know, complications with pregnancy are very, very difficult to manage as a type 1 diabetic. You know, the idea that you are basically eating a lot more than you're supposed to be, the management is very restrictive. Um, you know, lots of people who have done this, and they've done it successfully, I'm not trying to say that people don't do it successfully, uh, is like, they have, but it sometimes has resulted in like bed rest. And it really just like changes your life. And I know lots of people are like, Oh, you're 16. Like, you don't know what you want. And I do know what I want. Like, I want to do stuff. I want to have an amazing career. And like, I may or may not want children. But I was just, you know, since 16, it hasn't changed the idea of being on bed rest for nine months, Ugh. and not, you know, being able to which is like kind of more of an added consideration in, in the recent past, like I can't, I wouldn't be able to take my ADHD medication during pregnancy. So like to me and my partner, we don't, we don't have any particular feelings about being parents, whether it's, you know, through um, surrogacy or adoption. Um, definitely. I think adoption is probably my most most preferred, but it, there are also challenges with that. And so, you know, I made the decision early on, like I was 16, I was like, I, I don't want to do this. I want, I want a permanent solution. And it was just so rough. Like, you know, the misogyny of having to deal with, you know, quite often older doctors who come from a different generation, um, some of them being men who feel very entitled to giving them or giving me their, you know, version of what they consider is to be like the best outcome had tons of, you know, healthcare professionals say, well, you're just so young and, and like, you don't know, <laughs> graduated with a nursing degree. Like, I feel like I, I do know, like, I know exactly what this means and I know exactly what I'm doing. Yeah. And so I just, we just kept kind of working through it, working through it. And I was really lucky to find a really amazing doctor, shout out Dr. Davies and Mount Royal. And he was just so great about understanding where I came from and like really validating sort of the reasons behind my choice. And, but what this like really did for me was reaffirm and reemphasize that like your, your patient, and I don't even, I don't even like using the word patient to be very frank with you. Like your client is the best resource that you have when you are working with, somebody in the healthcare system. So, you know, like they might not know the jargon, they might not know all the lab values, they might not be, you know, trained as a surgeon, but they know what's best for them. And if you just, you know, it's, it's, it's personally, I think very negligible as a healthcare provider to be trying to work towards an outcome that your client doesn't agree with, but it is also very economically poor as a choice. Like I'm thinking about all of the different appointments that I've had, you know, all of the time that I have taken up because of the consistent like runaround and the, we can't do this for you or come back in three years or whatever, like it drains the system. And we're seeing that very real right now when you talk about coronavirus, right? Like removing my fallopian tubes and coronavirus, how are they 
you're the same. Well, don't waste people's time and, you know, do the things that you need to do. I think what's really interesting about this is you're a lot of what you're ultimately talking about is sort of like advocating for yourself and, and, and how challenging that can be when you don't know the system and you don't uh, like you're not as well versed in it as you are. And we recently had a guest on who's from the U.S. and was talking about her journey with endometriosis and how long it took for her to get an accurate diagnosis and how hard she had to advocate for herself and, you know, what you've had to advocate for yourself through like just not wanting your fallopian tubes and people second guessing you and how they've, you know, slowed the system and and everything. It's really important for people to be able to be well-versed and and do what they can to advocate for themselves in a in a world where ideally others would step up to the plate, but that personal responsibility I think is key. Yeah. You know, from a theoretical perspective from an economic perspective from like a patriarchal like there's so much to get into but it like when you talk about advocating for yourself I just like yeah obviously I think that is a key a key piece but also just being heard right like there are that is the responsibility of the person providing your care if you are not familiar with the system and you walk in there thinking like I'm going to be and then you're not, it's very difficult to advocate for yourself in that moment, let alone when you have 15 minutes now, yeah. apparently. Like, you know, it's, it's difficult and we shouldn't be putting clients in that situation. Like that, that's just, that's just not good healthcare. And, you know, the alternative to that is that we've seen some really amazing models of care out there that you know, kind of challenge norms are not traditional and are really, really client focused, but not in a way that also, you know, like overextends your healthcare professionals. Yeah. Well, I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to move into the final five questions that we ask all of our guests. So they're kind of just quick fire ones. So Mm -hmm. the first is what are the, we might've already talked about it, but what are some of the things or projects that get you fired up in a good way? Okay. I'm going to step away from politics. I am like a nutty craft lady. Like I just love crafting yeah um and I'm not very good because I don't think that I've made it like a consistent enough routine to sort of build skill but I've picked up like crocheting cross stitch I'm gonna start branch weaving soon because weather is kind of getting in my way of that because I wanted to go out there and forage but love crafting they're great and it's a great way to like creatively free your mind and for those that are trying to get off social media and digital, doing something like with your hands, without media, yeah. very, very good thing for uh, self-care and stress yeah. reduction. Uh, you've talked about being a reader. Mm-hmm. What's one of the most inspiring books you've read in the past few years? Oh, oh, um, I have not been very good at reading books lately, and I'm really trying to get back into it. But um I did read recently a book called Tin Man by Sarah Winman, and it's a very short read, but it was the last book that I read that like, you know, just like left me like in anguish and not even because it ended in a sad way. It was just so it's a short book and you go through half of it, not really knowing what you're, what it's about, but the, but it's just a very compelling read. And then it all just comes together in this beautiful way and this beautiful story. And I just remember just letting out this like giant groan after I'd finished because I was like, no, like it can't be over, but it was still, yeah. And so I won't won't spoil it. And I won't even like talk about what it might be about because there's just like a lot going on, but it's a, it's a short book, really recommend it to people like take an afternoon. And then I think it was the, like the short stories, Uh, I'm forgetting Roxane Gay was the editor of the American short stories for 2018. Okay. And I think about that collection of essays quite often. Um, It was, it was a beautiful curation of stories. Awesome. Well, we will link to both of them in the show notes for today. So people should go check them out. Uh, We've talked about uh, some of your go-to strategies for handling stress. Anything else that you want to add that sort of wasn't talked about? I think just slowing time down, you know, like trying to use everything that you do in your usual routine to just be a little bit slower um, and and to like take a moment for yourself. Uh, One thing that I've been doing actually, so this is going to sound really strange, but I have this beauty tool called Aphorio 
like a pulsating face scrubber. Okay. There's like many different versions of it out there. So when you turn it on, it runs on an automatic timer for three minutes. Um, and you don't need to like use it on your face for a full three minutes, but it just turns off. And so rather than shutting it off early after I finish using my face, like using it on my face in the shower, I will let it go for the full three minutes, even if, if I'm in a bit of a rush, because in that moment, I'm like, my eyes are forced closed because I'm washing my face and I just have to stand there for three minutes and try to be mindful. And yeah, so just using little things that you do to create an opportunity for some peace and some mindfulness, I think goes a long way you know waiting for the bus stop waiting for your coffee to brew like just snag it when you can I love it what is the best life lesson you've learned or advice that you've been given don't believe people when they tell you no I love it yeah yeah I just I am here today been so lucky to experience so much because of honestly nothing other than spite uh, some unfortunate soul was like, Shifra, I don't know if you can do this. I don't know if this is possible. And I was like, well, now I have to go do it. And here we are. Yeah. So I just, I think that simple piece of advice has gotten me very far. Oh, excellent. And finally, what does it mean to mm-hmm. you to live your best life? Uh Oh man, I just sound like a bag of cliches now. I just like, I guess nothing is permanent, you know, like your best laid plans are always subject to change. And so trying to remember that and embrace it, especially if you're someone like me who loves a schedule, um, can, yeah, I think, I think that's really just, it's helped me live my best life, you know? It's changed. It, it allows me to have fewer expectations. And then when I do that, there's an opportunity to really be, be inspired, excited, happy with what happens. And I think, again, we're recording this March 13th. I have no idea what the world will be like when this goes live. But I think that's so important right now when everyone's schedules are being thrown out of whack with um, social mm-hmm. distancing and isolation and everything. I think this will pass. We always make it through uh, emergencies and and crises like this and nothing is permanent. I think that's great. Well, thank you so much, Shiffer, for joining us on the podcast and have a fantastic day. Yes, you as well. This was really great. So again, huge thank you to Shiffer for sharing her story. I know I took away so many actionable tips and uh, takeaways from how I can get a bit more involved and advocate for myself and others. Again, if you are an essential worker or you know an essential worker and you would like to help them build their resilience and bounce back from these stressful times uh, faster each time, then please send them to stresslessladies.com forward slash frontline so they can get free access to my six-week building resilience during COVID-19 program. Thank you again. And next week, we're going to be talking about self-sabotage. It's definitely a juicy topic. And I know a lot of us can benefit from it. So take care.